Welcome to everybody. Good to see some new faces, at least new to me. Um, if I haven't met you before, I'd like to say hi to you afterwards. Um, but thank you also for your prayers for us as a family. I think you're aware it's been, uh, what is it, three and a bit weeks we've been here and we're, we're settling in. And some things are starting to go well and feel like just normal life and, and some things are still taking a bit of effort to, to get to. Um, and you heard earlier, Peter was praying about house moves. I know Jim and Eva in the middle of it too. Uh, do keep praying for us. Hopefully we will know tomorrow where we stand. Uh, but um, I want to say thank you especially also to to the, the Thornby Avenue Home Group who have, uh, who have prayed us through this week. Uh, I almost wasn't here today. It, I was an hour or two from having to get on a plane back to Cape Town on Thursday to sort out some things, but uh, they, um, they were resolved literally with uh, an hour or two to go. Otherwise, I would have had to be on my way to fix them. But here we are, and um, just wanted to say thank you again. We are feeling very welcome and very loved, and it's, it is a pleasure to be here. Now, um, as I mentioned, we'll be moving to our, our home soon, so we look forward to hosting you there and, and, and feeding you a lot, which is uh, will be Nicolette's pleasure to cook for all of you as much as she possibly can. Um, and speaking of which, lastly, I'll say, and then we'll get into the text, um, if any of you are around for Christmas and don't already have plans, don't have somewhere to go, please do come and chat to me or Nicolette afterwards. We'd love to, we'd love to have you and feed you uh, as much as we can. All right, so we're going to continue uh, with our series in Ephesians. We've been going, I think this is the eighth week, um, and we're halfway through chapter four. Um, and the question here, uh, Christopher, I think you can, you can bring up the first one, next one. There we go. How now should we live? That is the question that this passage asks and answers. So we've, we've Christopher, you can, um, you can go to the next one. So it begins, so I tell you this. So indicates he's referring to something that's been before. Uh, it's the first three chapters. You'll see uh, basically Paul, Paul outlines a big picture, the, the big picture of what God has been doing in all eternity, in redeeming a people for himself, in creating a new humanity under Christ's lordship, uh, reconciling people to himself, and, and creating a church that would display the wisdom and the glory and the saving grace of God to the watching world. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, to the next one, uh, now James last week uh, preached from this and explained to us that as God's people, we, now, we, we preserve the unity that we have under Christ's Lordship. We do this by discovering the gifts of ministry God has given to us for mutual service and by using them to serve one another so that we grow together in Christian maturity. So the, the obvious question, and what comes next, is, well, how? What exactly does this mean? What does this look like in day-to-day -day life? How now shall we live? How now, in light of everything that's been before, and with a view to where we actually live, our context, where you are day-to-day, -day, your office or classroom or uh, at the supermarket <coughs> in your relationships, how does this actually make any difference? What does this look like? And, <clears throat> beg your pardon, Paul gives gives an answer to this in two parts. The first part, so he says, I tell you this, don't live like the world. You'll see that in verse 17. And then the, the, the positive counterpart to that, love like Christ at the end of the passage with, uh, that Eve read for us. Don't live like the world. 
Love like Christ. Now, the thing is, it's actually really hard to not imitate the world, to not live like the world. In fact, we, we probably don't uh, even realize we do it a lot of the time. I, I know it will astound you to hear, but I'm actually 42 years old. Um, Nicola, shaking your head again. Um, and for about 40 of those years, I've lived in Cape Town in South Africa, which, um, which means I have a, a South African accent. Now, we did a little demonstrations with accents earlier. Now, if, if I tried to persuade you that I was Jamaican, I could grow dreadlocks. I could grow dreadlocks. I could say mon a lot. And it would do nothing to persuade you that I was Jamaican, would it? Nothing at all. I'm quite obvious, obviously South African. But um, the thing is, I, I didn't have to put any effort into sounding like a South African. I just do. Because I grew up there. Sorry. I never decided I'm going to learn to speak like a South African. I never went to any classes. I didn't have to take a course. I didn't intentionally copy anybody. I just do. I grew up there. I imitated the way the people around me spoke. And so this is what I sound like. Likewise, the American in our midst and the German and the Jamaican. That uh, it was really impressive, by the way, guys. <laughs> I thought very well then. You just learn by following the people around you. You're not even really conscious that you're doing it. It just happens. Likewise, each one of us, now, even, even in this room, in the few weeks we've been here, I hear um, it may not be quite as different as German or South African or, or, or American, but some of you say Bath and some of you say Beth. Um, and I, I'm sure you didn't choose it that way. It just happened. You just grew up speaking that way. In fact, you probably weren't even aware until a certain age that anybody spoke differently to you. That's just how it was. As, as Jonathan said, this is just the right way to speak. Well, Keith also said it, in fact. We may, have, uh, we may have an arm wrestle over that later. The thing is, in the same way, we just absorb the values and the patterns and the ways of life of the world around us. We aren't always conscious that we do it. In fact, most of the time, we probably aren't. It just happens. We just live in this world. We just live in this town, in this society, at this time in history. And we unconsciously absorb much of what goes on around us. That, that doesn't mean that there's no conscious imitation. It could be the case. It may be that there's somebody you really admire at school or at work or uh, a celebrity. Um, but most of it we just absorb, just by living in a place. It just happens. Well, maybe, maybe we um, wouldn't like to admit how much we have been influenced and shaped by the world around us. But I would bet that deep down in all of our hearts, there are, there are things we wouldn't like to, um, to admit to, things we wouldn't like to own up to, that in, fact, in areas where we have in fact just followed the flow, gone with the flow, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> it may be that... Some attach more importance to their appearance than you realize or would like to admit. Well, you know, to be honest, given the way the media works, magazines and TVs and um, YouTube celebrities and all that who constantly tell us what is and isn't attractive, it really isn't surprising that at least to some extent our ideas of what makes us attractive or not are shaped by the world around us. Even if we think that they aren't. 
it may be for some people that more of your sense of identity and self self worth is anchored in in what you earn or what kind of job you do. Now that wouldn't be at all unusual or surprising in our society, would it? We're taught from very young, you must study hard so that you can get good marks, so that you can get into a good university, so that you can do this, so that you can get a good job, so that you can buy a nice house and do this and do that. It really wouldn't be surprising if to some extent our sense of identity and worth was rooted in the way the world works in that respect, what we earn, what you do. Maybe, for some people, you need the approval of others so much that you're like a a confused chameleon, always changing what you think, what your opinions on things are, to to fit in with whoever's approval you want most at any any one time. Now, the thing is, all of these things are probably true of us to to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent, because it's just natural human behavior to imitate, to learn from those around us to be like those around us. We become like what we most treasure. And the problem is the world never stops telling us what to treasure. Money, status, popularity, how many likes and friends and followers you've got on Facegram and which street you live on and which school old boys tie you wear on a Friday and so on. It never stops. Every time you're on some media, somebody is telling you what you ought to treasure. We've just been through two weeks leading up to Black Friday, and without soliciting it in any way, I got a flood of emails every day telling me, buy this, buy that, buy this, stuff I don't need, don't want, never asked for, but people are telling me to treasure this, that I should treasure it so much that because it's 50 pounds off or whatever, I must buy it now. The world never stops telling you what to treasure. And if we most treasure just fitting in, just being liked, well, then we will fit in. And we'll do whatever we need to do to be liked, to not say things or do things or behave in a way that makes people not like us, that might embarrass us in front of our friends, even if that means compromising on truth. Do you think... And this is not at all unique to Britain. But do you think that modern, so-called enlightened society values truth? Truth with a capital T. Or do they value fitting in? Which is more important? Which is more important where you work, where you go to school, where you play? But Paul says no. Paul says, in fact he says... He insists in the Lord that we no longer live like the world around us. That, but it's a world that doesn't want to know God. It's a world that pushes away the knowledge of God. Of course he's going to say don't live like that. After all he's taught us in the opening three chapters and the beginning of, of chapter four, how can we now live like a world that denies God? Not a world that is unaware that God exists. The Bible teaches us that all people know deep in their hearts truly that God exists. But they don't want to know. The knowledge is suppressed. It's pushed away. It's rejected. Of course a world like that is going to be at odds 
with a Christian worldview, a Christian ethic, a Christ-like way of life. Now, while it's true that while a lot, a lot of what we imitate in life is unconscious, it doesn't have to be that way. For example, my accent probably won't change. I'm too old for that, at least not much. But I, I can choose, and I do choose, to use some different words here in England than I would use in South Africa. I, I cannot fathom for the life of me, for example, why this is called a jumper. It is, it is quite obviously a jersey. But here I will call it a jumper. I don't know why, but it's just a jumper here. Likewise, if you were to visit South Africa and you were driving somewhere and you asked somebody for directions, you would have to choose to adopt some South African ways of speaking. Otherwise, you'll get nowhere. You will be just driving forever in a straight line, wondering where on earth are all these robots that everybody's telling you to turn left at, when quite obviously what they mean are traffic lights. But in South Africa, they are robots, not traffic lights. You would have to choose to adapt. You can and must, to some extent, choose to fit in where you are. In England, I must put off some of my South African ways of speaking, and I must put on some English ways of speaking. I must stop calling this a jersey, lest you think I'm wearing a cowl, and <laughs> start calling it a jumper. Um, which Fifi is quite enjoying, by the way, calling things jumpers. Paul tells us in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, that we have put off our old self, and we have put on Christ. It is, to some extent, conscious. It is a reality. It is a thing that God has, has done in us. We have new hearts. We are new, new creation people. But there, there is also a conscious putting on and putting off every day, putting off the old ways of life, putting on the ways of life that correspond to our new reality, that correspond to what God has done within us, that demonstrate the reality of the change that has happened. So Paul describes in this passage a little bit of what the old life and what the new life look like. In verse, um, in verse 17, he's talking about the old life. He says, <clears throat> it's characterized by futile thinking. That is, meaningless, ultimate, in an ultimate sense, ultimately meaningless. Characterized by futile thinking. In verse 18, that it's darkened. It's ignorant of God and his ways. Willfully rejecting what's true. In verse 19, it's given to sensuality, to indulgence, to impurity, to greed. Now, Paul's not saying that every non-believer lives this way in the most extreme way possible. Rather, what he's saying is that the ultimate motivations of um, the old life and the new life are opposed to each other. The old life is fundamentally self-centered, self-worshipping even, self-indulgent, even at the expense of others. Whereas the new life is quite different. We'll get to a description of that now. The thing is, that you live from the heart. Your behavior flows from what's in you, from what you most treasure. As I said before, you become like what you most treasure. So you see in verses 19 through to the end of chapter 4, he continues. He says the old life is characterized by falsehood. 
He's telling us to not live this way, but of course that implies that this is characteristic of the old life. It's, it's characterized by falsehood, by anger and broken relationships. In verse um, 26, 27, in your anger do not sin. That implies that we were prone to anger. And not only to anger, but to to, to broken relationships, because he, he says we mustn't let anger endure and give the devil a foothold. That implies that beforehand we were prone to let anger endure. We were prone to let it fester and build and grow into something that becomes relationally destructive. Theft. I don't think he's really talking specifically about theft here. He's talking about, he's using it as an example of um, a way of life that is that is content to take at the at the expense of others. Now, of course, that could be theft, but it need it's not necessarily limited to that. It just means you want what you want when you want it with m- minimum effort, and if you can get it at somebody else's expense, you'll take it. And we'll come back to it in, in a minute. He talks about unwholesome talk, verse twenty nine, gossip, slander. <clears throat> Towards the end of the chapter, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, every form of malice. And this is what the old life looked like. But the new life, he tells us, is created, in uh, verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does this look like? Well, verse 23, we have a renewed mind. We have a new mind, and we continually renew our mind. Or shall I say, our minds are continually being renewed by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit at work in us, by our ministry to one another, and our encouragement of one another. What would you say is the opposite of the description in verse 19? Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, to indulge in all kinds of impurity. What would be the opposite of that? Something like self-control, perhaps? Truthfulness? If the old life was characterized by falsehood, the new life is characterized by truthfulness. That in community we speak the truth to one another, in love, in a gracious way. If, if the old life was characterized by anger that wasn't um, brought to resolution then in the, in, in the new life, we value relationships such that we resolve our disagreements. Paul's, Paul's not being unrealistic here and saying there will never be anger in the new life, in the new community. You're not allowed to ever get cross with each other. He recognizes that we live in a fallen world and it will happen. We, it will happen. But he's saying don't let, it, don't let it carry on. Don't be angry with one another for days on end. Don't give the devil a foothold. In this new community, value your unity, as we learned earlier in the chapter. Preserve your unity. When the inevitable frustrations of life happen, and you get cross with each other, fix it. That's characteristic of the new life. Proactively work for the good and the health of your relationships. Theft. As I said, I don't think he's dealing with a specific theft problem in the church. I think what he's saying is your old and new life ought to be so different that it's like 
the th- one who was a thief now works with his own hands enough to have, so he's got sufficient to give away. So you go from being a, a taker to a giver, from being just a consumer to one who labors to serve others. What implications might that have in our life together, in family life, in home groups, in how we serve one another on Sundays and through the week? That we don't just consume. That this new life that is at work within us, our renewed minds make us want to serve one another, not want to consume. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit the hearer or may give grace to those who listen, is another way of of translating those words. What would that be like? What would that be like to always be spoken to that way? At home, here in your home groups? Now, I'm sure we would all love that, but we all also know how hard it is to do that, isn't it? To always speak in a way that is gracious and that is good for building one another up. Verse 32, be kind, be compassionate, etc. Now, why I say it's hard, Paul's not being, as I say, he, he's not being unrealistic. He's not thinking that we're a super spiritual bunch of people who don't actually live in the real world with real problems. But I think before something becomes a reality, you have to want it. You have to desire it. You have to even imagine it. I think it's like, um, you know, like top sportsmen. They say they, they, they visualize the game in advance. I'm sure before a, a big match, Roger Federer is, is imagining. He's imagining how he's going to serve. In, in his mind, he's, he, can, he can feel the strike of the ball on the racket before he even gets on the court. I'm sure Lewis Hamilton, before, um, before a race, He's raced that track a thousand times in his mind before, before the day of the race even dawns. I'm sure he imagines how the wheel will feel in his hand, how the car will pull through the corners. I'm sure he imagines the feel of the, the power and the scream of the engine as he accelerates. God has given us imaginations to use for good. And we need to imagine what this community could be like. Not in an unreal, utopian sense. We're going to, every now and then, get cross with each other. I'm going to do something wrong, and you're going to get cross with me, and so are you, and I'm going to get irritated with you, and whatever. It's going to happen, but we're going to fix it. We need to imagine. We need to want this. We need to desire this. And it will become increasingly true. The late um, John Stott one of, the, uh, one of the towering giants of British uh, global evangelical Christianity, said that after studying and teaching Ephesians intensely for more than five years, he had been dreaming its dream. That's how he phrased it. I wonder if we could dream the dream of Ephesians together. I wonder if we could imagine what we could become, what we already are, but are growing in maturity as. We are Christ's, we are God's people, and we are growing together in unity and maturity. Let's imagine it. 
The thing is, it's also more than just a dream. John starts right to say he's been dreaming its dream. But it's more than just a dream. If you go back to verse 17, you'll see, it's put there, so I tell you this. But you'll notice Paul says more than that. So I tell you this, and, <clears throat> beg your pardon, insist on it, insist on it in the Lord. That's strong language. I insist on it, says Paul. In fact, he says, in the authority of the Lord himself, I insist on it. That's quite something to say. I insist that you must, you must live this way. <clears throat> well, must can mean different things, can't it? Must can mean a command. When I tell my children um, it's bedtime, they must listen. I hear some chuckles, but actually it's, it, it, it's true. I'm their father. I've given an instruction. It's time to get ready for bed. And they must obey because I said so. But must can also mean something different. It can also be a must, not of command, but of necessity. For example, what goes up must come down. See, the physicist got that one right quickly. It's a must that describes the way things are. There's no alternative. Things just are that way. Gravity exists, so when I throw a tennis ball up, it must come down. Now, how can Paul command us to live, to, sorry, to not live like the world anymore? How can he say, stop being in the world? How can an Irishman stop sounding like an Irishman? Those patterns of speech are learned by unconscious imitation. And once they're there, they're set. We all live in the world. We all go to an office or a classroom or a factory or the supermarket. We all interact daily with the world. We listen to the radio while driving. <clears throat> we watch the news, watch a whole lot of other stuff on TV and movies and YouTube and Instachat. And how can Paul say, you must be different? And this takes us to what I think is the heart of this passage. If you look with me at verse 20. It says, that however is not the way of life you learned. Um, a different way of translating that verse is, that is not the way you learned Christ. Um, we have uh, better Greek scholars than me in the room. And they'll tell you that that is actually literally what this verse says. That is not the way you learned Christ. Where does the power for a changed life come from? You become like what you most treasure, what you most value, what you see as beautiful, what you see as of the greatest worth, as of supreme value. You become more and more like it. So when Paul says, this is not the way you learned Christ, referring to the ways of the old life, this is not the way you learned Christ. He's not saying, you've learned a whole bunch of good things about Jesus. He's not saying, you've got all your theological uh, ducks in a row and all your doctrines sorted out and you know a lot about Jesus. He's saying, this is not the way you learned Jesus. Just like you didn't have to go to a class to learn how to speak the way you speak or how to be British, you just are. 
So by being with Jesus all the time, by communion with Jesus, through his word, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, you learn Christ. So Jesus becomes the the treasure of your heart. The person you value above all else. You have learned Christ. And as we get to know him, so we grow in Christ-likeness. Just as, just as my children will become increasingly English the longer they live here, so, for us, the more and more we spend time with Jesus, in his word, encouraging one another towards Christ-likeness, the more we get to know him, the more like him we will become. You'll notice in verse uh, 21, <clears throat> that is not the way you learn Christ, and we're taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. See, he says Jesus. He doesn't say Christ there. What he means is, you've got to get to know this person. As you know this person, not a, not a system of doctrines, although it's good to know those, not all the right theological answers, although it's good to know those too. The heart of this is a person, the person, Jesus. And you have learned him. That is why Paul can command. So I tell you, and insist on it in the Lord, you must not live like the world. And at the end of, of our passage, don't live like the world, love like Jesus. The power of, of love to change you from the inside out. Love for Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? He's always pointing you to Jesus. Always fanning into flame in your heart your, your affections for him. Always transforming you ever more into the likeness of Christ. That is why Paul can command this. It is a must of command. It is. So we must do something. We consciously put on, put off. But it's also a must of necessity. If you truly know Jesus, if you have come to know him, if you have come to Christ to know him and to love him, there is no other way it can be. That's what he's saying. It cannot be otherwise than that you grow in Christ-like maturity. So how now should we live? Well, verse... Uh, Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 say, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So, so what is the ultimate motivation here? It's interesting the way he phrases it. He says, talking of Jesus, Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, as what? As an offering and sacrifice to God. Fragrant offering and sacrifice really just means it was something that, he, that, he, that pleased God. Jesus did something for us, for the pleasure of his Father. The action was directed to us. The service was for our good, for our benefit. But he did it for the pleasure of his Father. That's what it means to love like Christ. 
in verse 30 of chapter 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, talking about all these things that characterize the old way of living. But that implies that if we're living according to, to the new way of living, that we can actually please the Holy Spirit, and that we do, in fact, please the Holy Spirit. And so, sometimes when we're... Um, let's take a practical situation. I talked a bit about anger earlier and repairing relationships, and I'll pick on that because all of us know how hard that is. When somebody has upset you, and to be honest, it's hardest in your own family, isn't it? When your brother or sister or husband or wife has a, have upset you and done something that's really hurt you, it's one of the hardest things to take the initiative to go and repair that, isn't it? Instead of letting it fester. And then there's hours or days of silence and awkwardness. It's really hard, especially when you feel you're in the right, as you usually do, don't you? <laughs> but what if it wasn't a transaction? What if it wasn't, a, what if it wasn't first a thing between... Uh, and I'll just say between me and Nicolette, for example. What if my or her initiative to reconcile was first about doing something to please my father? I go to her and say, let's talk, let's fix this. And I'll tell you, more often than not, she's the one who will come to me and initiate, so I'm just for the sake of example. But... Um, my action is directed to her to say, let's talk, let's fix this. Let's not let anger fester. Let's not give a foothold to the devil. Let's preserve our unity. But it's really hard to do that when you're angry with that person. But in that moment when I'm angry with that person who has hurt me and I feel I have a right to sulk, what if my first transaction was between me and God? I said, God, I will humble myself, I will bite the bullet, I will do what just goes against the grain of my, of my natural inclinations right now, and to offer to you something pleasing and fragrant. I'm going to go and make right. I think that's what it means to love like Christ. So, so can we, together, as one body, together with the late Reverend Stott, can we together dream the dream of Ephesians? That we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses understanding. Peter preached for us a couple of weeks ago on this passage. Remember the illustration of the batteries and how powerful it was and, and could do more things if it was more powerful? Isn't it amazing? But in that passage, he says, <clears throat> I pray that you would be filled with all the power of God. And you think, you know, that you need this tremendous power to do some remarkable thing. But what for? It's so that you would know. It takes all the power of God. It takes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It takes, frankly, it takes having a new recreated heart to know the love of God. But now that we know it, and we have learned Christ, and He is our treasure, and we day by day grow in love for Him, it can only be 
as Paul says, you must. It can only be that we grow in love for one another too. So what does it mean? What is the answer? How now should we live, church? Not like the world. Don't live like the world. Love like Jesus. And uh, may that be to the pleasure and the honor and the glory of our gracious Heavenly Father as we do that. I'm going to uh, close in prayer briefly and uh, invite John and Anna up to, to lead us in response. Father, what, uh, what better prayer could we pray than that which Paul prayed for us? That out of your glorious riches you would strengthen us with power by your Holy Spirit in our inner beings so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That we, rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ that we would know this love, that we would be filled more and more to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you would do this, this in us, Father, that we cannot do for ourselves. Father, that you would be at work in our hearts day by day so that Jesus would be ever more our treasure. Would it be that this characterizes each of us individually? And our life together as a church. There are a lot of things we could say that we aim to, to, um, to be as a church. We could say we value a lot of good things. But above all of them, before all of them, at the heart of all of them, would we be a church that loves Jesus and loves like Jesus? Would you be glorified, Father, in our lives together? Amen.